This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Good day. Thanks for listening into Trumpet Hour. I'm Joel Hilliker. Where are the men? This is a question many people are asking after some recent tragedies, most notably the shooting last month in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 local law enforcement officers stood outside the room where an 18-year-old was shooting up a classroom full of fourth graders. Where are the men of courage? It's an important question that we'll discuss in our first segment. Then, China continues its march toward Asian supremacy, now expanding its presence in Cambodia, covertly building a naval base there that its military will have exclusive access to. This undermines decades-long efforts by America to build an alliance with this Southeast Asian nation, and it points to three key biblical prophecies. We'll hear a report about this from trumpet writer Jeremiah Jacques. Our crew in Jerusalem recently took a trip to Shiloh and met up with people who are excavating that site. This is the famed home of the biblical tabernacle in the nation of Israel. It's also the main topic of the newest edition of our sister magazine, Let the Stones Speak, which now appears on the armstronginstitute.org website. We're going to learn about this site of Shiloh from our Jerusalem correspondent, Christopher Eames. At the end of the show, I'll say a few words about why it is important to build a fighting spirit. Let's start now by talking about the loss of men. Listen to this recent report from Rita Panahi of Sky News Australia. Here's a sign of societal decay, another sign that our civilization is in serious decline. Have a look at this footage from the subway in New York City where a man in the white jacket and black leggings is rampaging on a train. Looks like there are plenty of able-bodied men around watching. He targets a woman, sits next to her and begins to assault her. What do you think happened next? Did the men on the train step in and protect this woman from a violent thug? Did someone bother yelling at him to stop, to show there was more of them than him? Well, no. The cowards watched as the terrified woman begged for help. Now, thankfully, that woman was okay and the assault did not end in her being grievously injured. The maniac went on to kick windows and terrify more passengers. But what does it say about society that not a single man stepped in to help? They allowed it to happen. Where are all the good Samaritans gone? Where have all the men gone? That is a terrific question. You also have to ask that after the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas last month, where an 18-year-old shot up a classroom full of 9- and 10-year-olds while law enforcement officers waited outside for tactical gear and room keys. Inside the room, one child reportedly placed several 911 calls over a period of 40 minutes. 
The commander on the scene decided not to have the officers storm into the room. Texas Department of Public Safety Colonel Stephen McCraw said he believed the situation had transitioned from an active shooter to a barricaded subject. In other words, he assumed all the children were dead. Many people are justifiably outraged that these officers didn't act quicker to protect these children. Society is suffering from a lack of men who are willing to stand up as protectors. And many people can recognize this. Many people still expect men to stand up and defend those who are helpless to defend themselves. That's what they expect. And I I find that kind of extraordinary considering how hard society has worked to destroy the role of a man. How much society has trashed the role of a man as a protector and a defender and all other aspects of a man's God-given role. You know, men have to be taught these things because naturally people are self-concerned and selfish. Men have to be taught and trained to look after the weak and the helpless. They have to be taught to be willing to sacrifice for the good of others. We have to be taught to fulfill our role as protectors and providers and leaders. But society doesn't teach that. It is totally confused on this point. It doesn't teach men to be protectors of women and children. In fact, the more enlightened among us, and I say that ironically, they condemn that mindset for being patronizing, for being patriarchal, for being condescending. They say that men should let women fend for themselves. And we have to realize that for virtually all of human history, in almost all societies, men have been taught and expected to defend women and children from threats. This has been a cornerstone of civilization. And what we're seeing now is the terrible price we are paying for dismantling that masculine role. You look at what happened in Uvalde, you look at what is happening in more and more situations in society. That that one incident on a subway in New York, this is playing out over and over and over with increasing frequency in society today. And it is a powerful illustration of how dangerous it is when we throw out tradition and we try to reshape society based on our own ideas. Ideas like sex roles don't matter, the role of a man, the role of a woman, that doesn't matter. And even further, now we're saying, well, gender is fluid. Like it doesn't even really exist. Biology is is irrelevant. These kinds of tragic events are exactly what we should expect more and more of as we embrace this kind of tragically erroneous thinking. When we emasculate our protectors, we make ourselves vulnerable to all kinds of evils. But we have to realize here that it's not just tradition we are throwing out. It is God's design. The reality is that a man's duty to protect 
is a God-given duty. God designed men with a greater capacity for physical strength than women and a tougher mental and emotional temperament than he gave to women. And we're talking generally, there are obviously weak men and there are tough women, and God wants women to be strong as well. He, he designed her for her capacity for physical strength to be less than a man and for, to, for her to express her strength differently than a man, but he wants women to be strong. And you see several biblical verses where it discusses that explicitly. But he gave men greater physical, mental, and emotional toughness as a general rule. And God intends men to build a sense of unselfish responsibility to protect, to provide for, to defend women and children, and, and to use that strength for that purpose. And you see this all through the Bible. Just to give you a couple of examples, the Apostle Paul said, I've showed you all things that how that so laboring you ought to support the weak. He wants men to use their strength to benefit others, to support and to care for and to protect those who are weaker. It, it, scripture actually describes women as the weaker vessel, weaker relative to men. Paul also wrote, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. So he's talking about how looking out for others and using strength for that purpose, that actually helps a man to conquer his own selfishness. In Isaiah 1 and verse 23, there's a prophecy there where God condemns our selfish society and condemns men who don't care for the needs of widows and the fatherless. And you, you see this in many, many scriptures. And it's talking about women without husbands, children without fathers, people who lack a man in their lives who's carrying out that God-given role. And God says that providing that masculine presence and relieving their affliction, he calls that pure religion. You can see that there in Isaiah 1. You can also see that in James 1 and verse 27. It's very important to God that men fulfill that role in the lives of women and children. Now, what I'm talking about here, this is something that is ridiculed in modern society. But again, look at what is happening because of that. We are paying a terrible price because we have thrown this truth out. The evidence of the error in the path that we are taking just builds more and more all the time. Can you recognize that? That tragedy in Uvalde, people are outraged at the police's cowardice. And it is outrageous, but what we have to realize is we aren't just seeing the moral failure of a couple dozen police officers. This is the inevitable result of a society that is ignoring and attacking God's law and even God's natural design. This is the inevitable result of a society that is promoting folly and lawlessness. And in the case of an incident like this, I think you can also make a direct line of causation to all the ways that law enforcement is being undermined and weakened in society. We keep attacking the police. We're accusing them of 
racism and overusing force and, and all kinds of other evils. Well, all of these things make police officers less likely to act in a situation where they need courage and conviction and where they need force and violence. How can we keep attacking the police the way that we are and not expect these kinds of tragedies to increase? How can we keep attacking the role of men in society and then act shocked and dismayed when men do not step up? We have done this to ourselves. Again, this isn't just the failure of a few policemen. This is the inevitable consequence of the fact that we have been aggressively whacking away at the pillars that have propped up civilization for generations. Rita Panahi is absolutely correct. This is terrible evidence of societal decay, evidence that our civilization is in serious decline. By working against God's design and by breaking God's law, we are making ourselves defenseless against evil. We have to be able to recognize cause and effect. In Isaiah 3, the first few verses there, God says that as a curse on our rebellious society, he has removed the strong, capable, courageous, masculine leaders, the pillars of a strong society, the mighty man, the man of war, the captain of 50, those who will charge out and deal with threats against the nation. When those men are taken away, a nation is cursed. A nation is vulnerable. And another curse on our nation is spelled out in Leviticus 26 and verse 19, there God says that if we turn away from him, he says, I will break the pride of your power. And that's what he has done. God has broken the pride of our power. And our nation has turned into cowards. We cower at the sight of one skinny man, probably not even 150 pounds, harassing a woman on a subway. And, and committing evil. No one will stand up to him. Nobody is willing to step up and put a stop to that. That is a curse. And when evil like that isn't confronted, it is certain to spread and become more and more oppressive to more and more people. What a curse, a terrible, terrible curse. We have to be able to recognize this. And we also have to listen to God. He gives us the solution. He tells us what we can do about that. It is crucial that we men embrace our God-given role as protectors and that we teach our sons to do the same. We publish a book that uses the Bible as the foundation for educating men about that role. And it shows how important manhood is to the stability of society. The book is called Biblical Manhood, and it's available for free at thetrumpet.com. You can read it there online, or you can order a free copy. We'll send you a hard copy of this book. And it provides detailed, practical instruction and direction on how to fulfill seven God-given roles 
for men, including leader and provider and husband and father. And there's a whole section of the book that is devoted to explaining a man's God-given role as protector. It has a chapter called Protect Women and Children. There's a mini biography of Moses and how he exemplified that role. There's another chapter on the importance of a man confronting evil. And it gives practical instruction on how a man can actually build this godly mindset and come to think more like God himself. God, who is a defender of the weak and a protector of the helpless. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. A Southeast Asian nation that America has long worked to develop as an ally appears to be turning away and casting its lot in with China, as we will now learn in this report from Jeremiah Jacques. A new Washington Post article has reported that China is covertly building a naval base on the coast of Cambodia and that China's People's Liberation Army will have exclusive access to this base. The report emphasized that both the Chinese and Cambodians are, quote, taking extraordinary measures to conceal the operation. The facility is located at Cambodia's Reem Naval Base on the Gulf of Thailand. And the Washington Post interviewed several United States government officials on the condition of anonymity. One of them said China will have, quote, exclusive use of the northern portion of the base while their presence would remain concealed, end quote. So the concealing and the secrecy are clearly important for the Cambodians especially. And that's in large part because Cambodia's constitution bans foreign military bases inside the country's borders. So the Cambodian leadership are understandably worried about a domestic backlash if this plan were to be made public. It's not yet clear what exactly the Chinese have offered the Cambodian leadership to convince them to flout the law and open the door to China. But what is clear is that if China acquires an ability to launch military operations from the Gulf of Thailand, it'll considerably strengthen the People's Liberation Army's ability to enforce China's claims of sovereignty over the South China Sea. This military presence on Cambodia's coast will also greatly boost China's power over the strategically vital Strait of Malacca through which around 90% of South China Sea crude oil shipments pass. So this base, if the reports are accurate, represents a major accomplishment for the Chinese. And American officials have been taken aback by the news. They're stunned that Cambodia would allow China to build such a game-changing presence inside their borders, and that's partly because... It's against Cambodia's constitution, as I mentioned, and it's also because Washington has spent a great deal over the years to develop Cambodia and to try to win it over as a U.S. partner. 
America has spent billions of dollars in Cambodia to help with education, poverty reduction, and economic development, and it has even focused a considerable amount of spending on military aid. America has assisted with training Cambodian soldiers and has even built military installations in the nation, including parts of the very naval base now in the news, the Ream Naval Base where China is now apparently moving in. So the U.S. has invested a great deal into Cambodia, but despite all of the outlay and overtures from Washington, Cambodia now looks to be snubbing the U.S. and apparently granting the Chinese strategically valuable access to their territory. American military analysts are particularly concerned that a new Chinese military presence in this region could undercut U.S. power in the event of an attack on American partners, such as Japan, the Philippines, South Korea, or Taiwan. Should one of these U.S. allies come under attack, many of the U.S. forces charged with their defense would customarily pass through the Strait of Malacca. But by using naval forces based in Cambodia, China could seriously complicate the transit of these U.S. forces. Given the strategic location of the Strait of Malacca, this is a serious concern. So China's new naval base in Cambodia, it is a potential game changer, but really this is only the latest increase in Beijing's ability to project military power around the world at the expense of U.S. might. There's also a naval base that the Chinese opened in East Africa back in 2017. This was on the coast of Djibouti, right on the junction of the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea at the Bab el-Mandeb. So that location imbues this Chinese base with great geostrategic importance. That's largely because about 12% of all seaborne trade coming in through the Indian Ocean passes through this strait. And the country controlling this choke point could potentially prevent other nations from using the vital route. So the naval presence in Cambodia will represent China's second overseas naval base, and then there are also several island bases in the South China Sea that the Chinese have recently built from scratch, dredging up sand to build artificial islands, then paving it over and building various military installations on them. And then there's also evidence that China is aiming to build bases in Pakistan, Singapore, Sri Lanka, Tanzania, and the United Arab Emirates. And last year, U.S. intelligence said that China also intends to build its first permanent military presence on the Atlantic Ocean by opening a base on the coast of Equatorial Guinea. If these plans materialize, China would have a whole constellation of maritime hubs from which it can support all kinds of naval, air, ground, cyber, and even space power projection. Its anti-access area denial abilities would take a great leap forward, as would its global tracking capability and general reach. Besides building a base in Cambodia and working toward establishing these other nations as well, China is also steadily building up the size of its naval forces. The People's Liberation Army Navy is already the world's largest in terms of the number of vessels. For the United States Navy, if you add up all of the aircraft carriers, destroyers, corvettes, submarines, and other vessels, there are a total of 297 battle force ships. 
China is already far beyond that with 355 vessels, including a new aircraft carrier that is now in the final weeks of construction. And by 2030, China is projected to have 460 battle force ships. It is true that whole count alone doesn't give the full picture, since ships are certainly not all created equal, but the sheer number of Chinese vessels is rapidly closing the gap between U.S. and Chinese naval power. Andrew Erickson of the China Maritime Studies Institute at the Naval War College spoke about the size of China's naval fleet to the Washington Post in an article published on June 6th. He said, As impressive as those numbers are, without a significant network of robust overseas facilities, their ability to use them falls off rapidly with distance from China. So these are two sides of the same coin, two facets of the same diamond, the warships and the bases, such as the new one in Cambodia. These two factors align in a way that will greatly increase China's ability to project military power far from its coasts. And it is happening largely in a way that can undermine America's naval might. So this is a momentous trend, and as it advances, it's simultaneously pushing forward three developments that are significant in the context of Bible prophecy. The advent of the times of the Gentiles, the assembling of the kings of the East, and the decline of America. The times of the Gentiles is a phrase found in Luke 21, 24. This is an era that the world will soon enter into, and Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry wrote about this in a February 2020 article called The Climax of Man's Rule Over Man. He explains that the term Gentile refers here to non-Israelite peoples. He writes, quote, The name Israel refers to a lot more than the little nation in the Middle East. And then Mr. Flurry shows that in End Time Prophecy, the name Israel refers mainly to modern-day America and Britain. And then he continues, Once you understand who Israel is, then you can see how the Gentiles, the non-Israelite peoples, have started to take charge of the world already. While there are many Gentile nations around the world today, when this prophecy is completely fulfilled, there will be two major powers, one revolving around Russia and China, and the other around Germany. Each will have strong allies." End quote. So one of the main powers during the times of the Gentiles will be a bloc led by Russia and China. It will be an era when U.S. influence has dried up and countries such as Russia and China will have filled the vacuum of power. Mr. Flurry continues, These times of the Gentiles are yet to be fully realized. However, we are in the outer edges of this catastrophic storm. End quote. So Cambodia's decision to turn its back on America and to authorize China to build a naval base on its territory blows this catastrophic storm a little bit nearer. This development with Cambodia also advances a prophecy recorded in Revelation 9.16. This passage is about an eastern army that will emerge during that same Gentile era, and it will consist of 200 million soldiers. A companion passage in Revelation 16.12 calls this future Asian bloc, quote, the kings of the east, with the pluralized word kings there indicating a multinational bloc 
comprised of multiple Asian states. Ezekiel 38 provides several details about this military bloc, including the fact that it will be headed by Russia with China in a position of junior leadership. So when Asian countries such as Cambodia rally behind China today, they are laying the foundation for the kings of the East prophecy to be fulfilled. The third prophetically significant trend that this development pushes forward is the decline of America. Back in October of 1961, just after America's botched invasion of Cuba, the world-renowned educator Herbert Armstrong said U.S. power would soon collapse. He placed the blame for this botched invasion not at the feet of the U.S. military or even the Kennedy administration, but at the feet of the American people. Mr. Armstrong wrote, quote, Unless or until the United States as a whole repents and returns to what has become a hollow slogan on its dollars, in God we trust, then the United States of America has won its last war. The God America has deserted gave it its most humiliating defeat. What does the Cuban debacle mean? It means, Mr. and Mrs. United States, that the handwriting is on your wall. Mr. Armstrong understood that America was heading for a collapse because the American people had rejected God, and he made his forecasts with confidence because they were founded on Bible prophecy. The Bible includes several remarkably specific and recognizable forecasts for the descendants of Israel, which, as mentioned a moment ago, includes America. One of these is recorded in Leviticus 26.19, where God says that if the nations of Israel failed to turn to him, he would, quote, break the pride of their power. In the six decades since Mr. Armstrong wrote about the Bay of Pigs fiasco and connected it to Leviticus 26.19, the people of the U.S. have intensified their rejection of God and his law. And in the time since, America has entered into dozens of military clashes, with each one of these half-hearted campaigns sapping a little more of the nation's pride in its power. Luke 21:26 shows that these various trends will culminate in a time of unprecedented global calamity and suffering, when men's hearts will be failing them for fear. Yet the next verse says that the calamity will end with the most revolutionary and transformative event in history. Verse 27 says, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So it's clear that the times of the Gentiles, the outer edges of which humanity is already in, will transition directly into a time of utterly unprecedented harmony and prosperity for the peoples of China, Cambodia, America, and all other countries. On the topic of this future age of worldwide peace, Isaiah 2, 4 says, Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. To understand the significance of China's deepening influence in Cambodia and beyond, and the hope that is intimately connected to these current events, order your free copy of Russia and China in Prophecy.
This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. The biblical site of Shiloh in Israel is being excavated right now, and there is quite a lot of interest being uncovered, as we will now learn in this report from Christopher Eames. Go ye now unto my place which was in Shiloh, God says in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 12. And so a couple of weeks ago, we did. My co-worker here in Jerusalem, Brent Nagtigale, I think you hear from him on this program relatively regularly, he and I took our families to tell Shiloh to meet up with a couple of archaeologists over there that we are acquainted with, who had promised to give us tours of their ongoing projects. So I thought it might be interesting to do this segment based on that trip and to bring our listeners up to speed with what's going on there, some of the new archaeological discoveries being made, as well as some of the old, and how it all relates to the biblical account. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the geography, Shiloh is located deep within what is typically called the West Bank, or as it's known to Israelis over here, Judea and Samaria. It's situated just under 20 miles north of Jerusalem, and you might be surprised, it is the most stunning drive around the hills and valleys. Much of the area is surprisingly forested, not something you would typically expect from the more dry and arid Middle Eastern environment, especially within the West Bank. Now, the name Tel Shiloh essentially means Mound of Shiloh. A tell is an ancient city mound. It's a name that's typically used in an archaeological context. So sometimes you'll hear the site referred to as Tel Shiloh instead of just Shiloh. And you've got uh, numerous other archaeological equivalents like Tel Megiddo, Tel Gezer, and even a reference in the more famous modern name Tel Aviv. Now Tel Shiloh then is specifically referring to the hill mound of the ancient city, the Tel of Shiloh. Now, the location of Shiloh is also one of the most easily pinpointed of all the biblical sites, particularly in the 19th century. Surveyors came to Israel attempting to to map out various biblical cities around the Holy Land, and with varying degrees of certainty, especially for the more uh, minor cities. But Shiloh has been readily and easily identified and confirmed, and there's a few reasons for this. The place retained quite well its equivalent name in Arabic through the centuries. There was an ancient Byzantine mosaic that was found at the site, emblazoned with the word Shiloh. And the biblical description of Shiloh from a geographical standpoint is incredibly detailed, but more on that further down. So, of course, what our listeners will be most familiar with about Shiloh is its place as the location of the biblical tabernacle. Actually, during the Judges' period, Shiloh was the central, most important location in Israel. It was the capital, the spiritual capital of Israel. And it was during this period, according to biblical chronology, between the years of about 1400 BC to 1000 BC, during this period that the tabernacle was located here in Shiloh. It was right at the end of this period that the Philistines conquered much of Israel. They captured the Ark of the Covenant, and Eli and his priestly family died. 
with the uh, prophet Samuel coming to the fore following that, and eventually the change to a monarchical kingdom, first led by Saul and then by David, who, as we know, brought the ark to Jerusalem, and then later his son Solomon built the temple there. So before Jerusalem, Shiloh was the beating spiritual heart of Israel, or at least it was intended to be. Because, as our listeners will know, if you read the judge's account, it is more often than not an account of rebellion against God and his proper worship. But we'll get more into that as we go. So, it was actually a hundred years ago to this very year that the first archaeological soundings were made of the site of Shiloh. And, randomly, the first to excavate the site was a Danish team. And in the 1980s, the site was excavated by a contentious individual called Professor Israel Finkelstein. If you follow much about archaeology, biblical archaeology, you'll know that he's a biblical minimalist, famous for seeking to downplay the historicity of the Bible, particularly relating to kings David and Solomon. And there have also been excavations since that time by the Israel Antiquities Authority, and these are still ongoing at the site, as well as excavations by the Associates for Biblical Research, a team that is led by Dr. Scott Stripling. And his excavations are still ongoing as well. So these excavations at Shiloh have variously uncovered a huge array of different finds, including impressive Roman, Byzantine, and Islamic structures, from the first millennium AD. But what is most significant, of course, are the earliest remains at the site, those from the Bronze Age through to the early Iron Age, essentially finds relating to the second millennium BC, or within 2000 to 1000 BC. The archaeologists have discovered, and are continuing to discover, what they describe as a Canaanite fortified city from the Middle Bronze Age, uh, right in the center of that second millennium BC. And one of the big questions about Shiloh is where the original city gate was. Now, gatehouses are one of the most important parts of a city, and the Bible itself describes them as being an important place of trading, commerce, and judicial matters. So the question of where the original entrance to the city of Shiloh was has been a bit of a conundrum for excavators over the past century of digging. And it looks like at Shiloh, the excavators are on top of two separate gates to the city. Currently, there are two excavations going on at Shiloh. There's one at the southern end. This is the Israel Antiquities Authority excavation that is co-directed by our friends and former assistants to the late Dr. Elat Mazar. Their names are Yodan Fleetman and Reut Ben-Arieh. And the other is being conducted on the northern end of the city. This is Dr. Scott Stripling's excavation. I think it's something like his fifth year of excavation at the site. So it was exciting for both archaeologists to reveal that they think they could be on top of the early original gates to the city, a southern chambered gate leading into the city, and then a gate at the northern end. Now, more than the question of the location of the city gates, though, is the location of the tabernacle. What is clear from the last 100 years of on-and-off archaeological efforts is that there was an immense amount of sacrificing going on at the site 
during the second half of the second millennium BC, the period of the judges. There's a particularly large favisa, as it's called, or a ritual sacrificial dump on the northeastern side of the site that Dr. Stripling's team is currently excavating. And notably, these sacrificial remains from the stump are from kosher animals, clean animals, as it were, as outlined in the Bible. What is also interesting is that a majority of the remains are from the right-hand side of the animal, something like two-thirds, or it might even be as much as three-quarters of the remains there. And there's got to be a logical reason for this statistical strangety. And if you look in the Bible, you find the answer. Leviticus chapter 7 talks about the special particular use of the right side of the animal in relation to tabernacle service and the priests. For example, verse 32 reads, quote, And the right shoulder shall you give unto the priest for an heave offering of the sacrifices of your peace offerings. End of quote. Now, another notable tabernacle sacrifice discovery has been that of altar horns. Several of them, I think there are at least four, that have been found variously around Tel Shiloh. Altar horns are an item peculiar to Israelite worship. Several passages in the Bible describe them, describe altar horns, and essentially on each corner of the top of an altar, there is a projection of sorts, a horn. So at Tel Shiloh, several cornerstones with a horn-like projection have been found. Unfortunately, these stones are typically found in secondary use, meaning that they're reused later, uh, uh, during later periods, within later walls, typically. However, their original purpose is clear, based on their shape and design, and evidence does point to their use during this early judges period, when we know there were all of these altar sacrifices going on. Additionally, there has been a pretty remarkable discovery of two small white ceramic pomegranates, little white uh, molded pomegranate models, and these are also biblically associated with the tabernacle and the temple. And the book of Exodus, for example, describes miniature pomegranates adorning the hem of the priest's robe. Similarly, the small ceramic pomegranates that have been found at the site have these little bored holes at the top of them, meaning that they too were meant to be hung from something. But again, the question, where was the tabernacle? We've got all these various evidences pointing to the tabernacle's function at the site, but where was the tabernacle? Various archaeologists and experts have had their theories. Was, was it on top of the tell? Was it just inside the northern part of the wall? Was it on the southern end? Perhaps it was just outside the city, or maybe it moved about the tell. Now, the reason for the ambiguity of the location, and even the theory about why it could move, um, is pretty easy to explain archaeologically. Primarily, the only preserved remains from such a time period thousands of years ago are going to be brick and stone structures. The tabernacle, of course, is a temporary tent structure. So let's just say hold tight for now because there are some very interesting things that are being discovered on the northern site of Shiloh. 
as we were toured through from the, this this latest visit, uh, including an east-west oriented platform with dimensions matching the biblical description of the tabernacle and some unusual surrounding storage rooms full of the remains of judges period vessels. And it's around this structure, this platform structure, that several of the altar horns and ceramic pomegranates have been discovered. So while the tabernacle itself, we don't expect to discover that, certainly a platform site can be a good indication of that. So we'll have to stay tuned. There are some very interesting tabernacle discoveries being made as we speak. But in the final bit of time we have here, there is one final discovery that all the excavators have made at the site, and this is a destruction layer dating to the 11th century BC, the very end of the Judges period. And this destruction event has been carbon dated and ceramically dated to around 1075 BC. And it's at this very time period that the Bible describes a Philistine incursion into Israel that, as mentioned, included the capture of the Ark and the death of Eli the priest at Shiloh and his family. Now, the Bible doesn't specifically mention the Philistines conquering Shiloh itself, but the link is pretty clear. And the Bible describes the rank sin that was going on in Israel during the Judges period that led up to this destruction including that of the priests themselves, Eli's sons, their thievery and prostitution at the site. This is what Psalm 78 verses 58 to 61 read, quote, For they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their graven images. When God heard of this, he was wroth and greatly abhorred Israel, so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which he placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. End of quote. And to this point, the reason why Shiloh is so specifically geographically described in the Bible, one of the reasons why we can so easily find it today, is because of an account in Judges 21 verse 19, in which certain Israelites are telling men of the tribe of Benjamin, this is a tribe not far removed from the location of Shiloh, they are being told exactly where Shiloh is located, where they can go to find Shiloh. These men evidently didn't even know where to find the spiritual capital of Israel. Jeremiah 7 describes a similar picture to Psalm 78, as I quoted from in the beginning. Here is the full quote, starting in verse 12. But go ye now unto my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Eternal, and I spake unto you, rising up early and speaking, but you heard not, and I called you, but you answered not. Therefore will I do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein you trust, and unto the place which I gave you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. End of quote. And Jeremiah 26 continue, uh, contains a similar prophecy of warning pertinent to us today. It reads, starting in verse 4, quote, Thus saith the Eternal, If you will not hearken to me, 
to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to hearken to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent unto you, both rising up early and sending them, but you have not hearkened, then will I make this house like Shiloh, and will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. End of quote. And so to this very day, the ruins of Shiloh stand in stark warning to us, some 3,000 years on. But there is also a message of hope to Shiloh and one of redemption, and this is central to the account of Hannah in 1 Samuel, as well as a Genesis 49 prophecy for the last days, as verse 1 says, in which the Messiah himself is named Shiloh. You can read about that in verse 10. Nevertheless, that's a topic for another time. But if you'd like to learn more about the archaeology of Tel Shiloh, take a look at the Trumpet's sister website, armstronginstitute.org, our latest magazine, which just got uploaded in PDF form a week or two ago, focuses primarily on Shiloh for this issue. So hopefully you'll get the chance to go up to Shiloh, as the scripture says, in person. But if not, I think this is the next best thing. It's time for today's Last Word. Well, the January 6th congressional hearings are filling America's news cycle right now. Democrats are trying to milk this event from a year and a half ago for all they can. They're casting themselves as defenders of democracy while they are actually destroying democracy. We sent the new version of Gerald Flurry's book, America Under Attack, to press yesterday. This book details so much evidence that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. Over 100 congressmen were there on January 6, 2021 to contest it. And then this insurrection, quote unquote, changed everything. America under attack says they wanted to use that protest to cover their treason. Radicals stole the 2020 election, then instigated the uglier aspects of January 6th, then overreacted to that protest to discredit it and to block all opposition to certifying the stolen election. Their plan worked perfectly. Those 100 members of Congress and the vice president caved in. They caved in, which is a disaster. Mr. Fleury is working on a companion article in the Royal Vision to the America Under Attack book. And this article says, once January 6th unfolded, it ended everything for President Trump. No one was there to stand up for him. Everyone ran and hid. These Republican leaders betrayed the president. Because Republicans caved in and Mike Pence certified the presidency on January 6th, Joe Biden, a man long guilty of rank corruption, was inaugurated, and Barack Obama, a modern type of the mad, hateful King Antiochus Epiphanes, was able to resume his efforts to blot out America and blot out even the name of Israel. So think about the state 
America is in because of what happened there. Mr. Fleury writes, What happens to someone when they run from a responsibility to the truth and to God? The fruits are not good. I believe Republicans in America have grown shamefully weak because of their compromising and cowardly spirit. What we're seeing here is more evidence of the curse of Isaiah 3. God has removed the mighty man, the man of war, the captain of 50, and our nation has turned into cowards. This shows you that warriors are rare. Having strength to stay in the fight and keep pressing when things get difficult or they seem impossible, this is a heroic virtue, yet pitifully rare. And look at how we are suffering because of it. The only thing that will turn this around is a miracle from God who has determined to save Israel by the hand of Jeroboam. Just about everyone else seems ready to drop to their knees and surrender to these satanic radical forces. Mr. Fleury writes in that Royal Vision article, When we run into difficulties, we cannot run from what we must do. If we are to be able to stand for God, we must be tough. It's a crucial point. We all need to build a fighting spirit. The tendency in our human nature is so strong to want to compromise with and to accommodate evil. It truly is the rare person who will fight evil. Now, once Jesus Christ returns to this earth, he is going to vanquish evil. So you have a prophecy in Isaiah 2 that says that people won't learn war anymore. But we don't live in a world ruled by God today. This is Satan's world, and evil is everywhere. It's all around us. It's even within us. So we must be fighters. If we don't fight it, then evil is going to spread and conquer and dominate. Read Matthew chapter 10. It's a jam-packed chapter where Christ is giving instructions to his disciples, and he's essentially telling them, you have a tough job ahead of you. He says in verse 16, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be you therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. This world is full of wolves, and God's people are sheep, and we have to be wise in how we conduct ourselves. We have to be aware of Satan's tactics. We have to be harmless or pure and innocent, free of the world's ways, and stay away from those ways. Read this whole chapter, and you see where Christ said that there will be persecution. There will always be conflict between God's people and the world, and we have to expect that. But Christ says, look, don't fear men. If you fear human beings, then you're going to make cowardly decisions. You can't be a coward. You have to fear God. Do what is right in His eyes. You have to be a fighter. Verse 34 of Matthew 10 says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Christ entered into Satan's world, the realm of the enemy, and he went on the offensive in a military mission. They're not going to be learning war anymore in the millennium, but we had better be learning it now because there will always be conflict and enmity while the devil is around. 
There'd better be conflict because the alternative is surrender. And we cannot afford to surrender to Satan. Where do you need more of a fighting spirit? Maybe you need to be tougher in the face of adversity. Maybe you need to fight harder against the influences of this world. Maybe you need to fight harder against your own bad habits or bad attitudes, your personal sins. American politics today shows what happens when you lack a fighting spirit. When society fails to fight evil, it is overcome by it. Just think about all of the evils that are spreading in the world today. We talked about some of them earlier in the program. You can think of evils like all of the nonsense that's taking place over gender identity and transgenderism. Society just wants to accommodate these things, and they are taking over. In this world, warriors are rare. God needs his people to be mighty spiritual warriors, willing to confront evil, willing to stand for what is right. And God is trying to help us in that process. He's trying to help us to overcome our own cowardice and self-absorption. And he's putting us through challenges. He's toughening us up. He's trying to build a fighting spirit in us so that we are ready for whatever may come. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Jeremiah Jacques and Christopher Eames. Thanks to Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Friedrich Nietzsche. When one has a great deal to put into it, a day has a hundred pockets. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. Listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.